Welcome to the Venture 12 podcast, conversations to engage, connect and inspire missional people. Welcome back to the Venture 12 podcast. Mark and Chris is with me. I'm Emma and we are looking forward to another great year of lots of podcasts. How are you both doing? Good, yeah. It's the first one of the year, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Happy New Year. Venturists. Venturists. (laughs) (laughs) Both rival gangs. Venturists. Yeah, yeah. I've forgotten the name of our fan base. Yeah, I do think that's. I, mean, I don't think there's probably any podcast in the world that has got rival fan bases. <laughs> uh, or well, yeah. I heard rumours of the adventurers starting as well. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. coming in from the east. Yeah, I mean they all they they all very <laughs> supportive. Not going on in the east. <laughs> yeah. They all very supportive of the podcast, but yeah, they are not very nice towards one another <laughs> behind, behind each other's back. What do they differ on? <laughs> I just think dress code. And, uh, <laughs> dress code. Dress code. Yeah. All right. <laughs> uh, I, 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 probably this is uh, thinking we're really wacky, but like, in the back of my mind is um, Monty Python: The Life of Brian. Yeah. There's a scene. Anyway, if yeah, I don't know if I'll explain it now, but there's a funny scene where there's various groups that all ag- kind of agree on the same thing, but they have slight differences and they all hate each other. Judean People's Front. Yeah, the Judean People's Front. And no, we're not the Judean People's Front, we're the People's Front of Judea. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. The, the main difference was in their name, but, yeah. but the difference between Venturists and uh, Venturers <laughs> is the dress code. <laughs> All right, well, that's a good start to yeah. the year. Well, we yeah. don't want to encourage conflict between between anybody, especially no, at this time. No, but we need to be real. And, and guys, <laughs> look, look, if, you're listening, if you're listening out there... <laughs> You need to pipe down, and, and you know we're all friends here. <laughs> we need to acknowledge what's going on, don't we? Yeah, yeah. Can't anyway, sweep it under the rug. Let's bring yeah. back, come back yeah, to reality. Twenty twenty two kicked off. Yeah. But let's not forget that we've just had a great year of podcasts in twenty twenty one. What was your favourite podcast, Chris? Oh, I mean, in terms of my favourite, I don't know. I mean, there's. T- one that I actually interviewed myself and that I loved was Pete Enns. Um, listeners that. of the show will know I'm a fan. In fact, my sister is coming to visit in two weeks and she is bringing two more books of his with her, <laughs> which are easier to order to England than Sweden. Yeah. So I've got another two. Uh, I'll, I'll be quoting him a lot on the podcast. How in the much do you months. like him? Um, <laughs> oh, a lot. Yeah, very much. That's brilliant. But if I take another one that wasn't perhaps one that I recorded myself, uh, I really, really enjoyed um, Brad Jerzak, The Christlike Word, a more Christlike Word. Um, So if you're not listening to that, go and check that out. Similar themes in some ways, actually, with biblical interpretation. Yeah. Yeah. What about you, Mark? Um, I think the one that I found more my home soil was The Starfish and the Spirit. Was that last year? Yeah, it was. Definitely last year. Yeah, definitely last year. Um, just around uh, the ideas of like mission, microchurches, um, new 
uh, ways of seeing leadership and the role of the leaders leaders within that kind of paradigm as being equippers yeah mm. I've kind of found that really really important and I just enjoyed it yeah but that was also me hosting that one so I bet we all say ones we did it was a really good one mm. yeah I enjoyed both the one that I did with Paula Gooder and Fran Porter I think they're just really good resources for people who are looking into the issues around female apostolic leadership and just understanding that historical context has been important for me yeah. and so I'm really happy that we're able to share that with other people who might mm. want to be yeah. exploring as well so the yeah. yeah and it became somewhat of a theme didn't it for whatever we kind of went around and the different things and topics that we explored last year that that was kind of like a continual thread yeah. female apostolic and uh, leadership yeah. and kind yeah. of rediscovering it's not over possibly. people <laughs> no, yeah, so we're drawing a line under that I mean we think it's a really important part of the jigsaw for this time don't we to raise that uh, that conversation yeah. these are conversations we think that everyone should be having I mean yeah. you might disagree but we really believe in it yeah. mm. um, I just want to say I think like <clears throat> last year there's so many moments that were like bombshell moments like didn't you just find when you were listening to all the podcasts almost always yeah. there was something where you were like oh my gosh I wish someone had told me about that earlier I wish I'd knew that mm-hmm. or I need to share this yeah um, so I don't know what you folks thought uh, listening but we really like, encourage you just to keep listening and share it you know yeah. Yeah, and if you have any kind of topics that you're really excited about this year, just let us know. Obviously, we've got a few things um, that we're thinking about, that we're exploring, that we're trying to find people that can speak into. Uh, But do engage with us on our different channels and let us know what what you're excited to learn more about this year as well. Is there any particular topics that you are kind of thinking about going into 2022? Mm -hmm. Either one of you. Yeah. Uh, well I think we want to keep raising that conversation about the female apostolic role space um, and and what that looks like the particular characteristics that that brings into the conversation you know yeah. what women bring into that creative edge or yeah. that shaping of the future of the church conversation yeah. and maybe it'd be good to have more like podcasts that resource folks who perhaps don't work as church leaders or planters or leaders of missional communities but folks who are outside the church walls who are living you know normal life so to speak uh how we can resource them people who really see their identity as pioneers missionaries Mm. outside it'd be great to like maybe pick up some some good resourcing and good uh good content for that yeah Um, otherwise mission collaboration all those kind of things yeah I think also for me it's like bringing the concepts, the ideas to a place where we can practice and I think that's maybe what you're touching on there, just like how do we architect change, how do we architect movement, how do we bring about you know, a, a group of people doing the things that make a difference in our communities and our different settings. Mm. Um, so I think that's really crucial because we've been talking about lots of ideas and and concepts over the over the past year but all of that is is well and good but it needs to also trickle down and be incarnated in different ways so so i'd be excited to explore that a little bit this year hmm. how we can do that practically great cool okay but we've got a really exciting podcast today um to reflect on a bit later mark who is our special guest okay so on today's show we've got 
Phil Wall, who is um, someone I've known for a long time uh, as a young person growing up in uh, the Salvation Army. Uh, Phil Wall was someone often at the front of stages, an evangelist, someone who was captivating in the way he spoke, made it exciting. Um, the gospel and the good news so a good news teller someone who's also been involved in uh, pioneering in various spaces and also uh, been a, um, someone who's catalyzed uh, change through um, charities that bring real impact in people's lives in Africa um, but he's also an M- uh, just received an award as an MBE along with his wife Wendy Wolf for setting up the charity we see hope and we're going to hear a bit about that story and some of the lessons that he's learned along the way in all those spaces of pioneering and innovation Um, it's exciting it's a really good conversation Uh, i was grateful for it i hope you enjoy it see you in a bit Well, welcome to the Venture Talk podcast, Phil Wall. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, thank you. I'm doing very well. Very well indeed. Bit bit nippy here in London today, but uh, but all, all good, thank you. All good. That's good. We were just talking earlier, I thought you were in Scotland because you've got a big picture of Scotland in the background. Yeah, I, I love Scotland and I'm a sad middle-aged golfer, so I uh, love <laughs> golf. And that's a beautiful golf course, a place called Brora in North Scotland. Yeah. yeah beautiful yeah the weather can change three times in six minutes uh, but um yeah it's amazing beautiful it's uh, good well let's get on with it what one of the questions we always um kick off with is can you tell us who you are what you've done yeah you a bit about your journey where where you are at this present moment so phil walls my name uh 58 years young um uh, yeah i was been i've been brought up in a in a religious uh family salvation army family um very it was a very kind of affirming and you know kind of supportive environment though traveled around a great deal my parents moved a lot they were ministers salvation Army officers uh so we moved a lot moved seven times before i was 16 and um so yeah i had quite a kind of a gypsy kind of a uh lifestyle early on and that's also have that in our uh, family genes as well um but uh yeah came to faith um despite the many attempts by um I'm sure many faithful Sunday school teachers uh, actually came to live in faith when I was 20 and when I was a policeman. And, and so I began my work in life as uh, as a policeman, a London policeman. My mother tells me that's all I ever wanted to be as a little boy was be a policeman. So I became a policeman, did that for eight years. Love that. Um, it was in the 1980s. And um, it's quite a, quite a uh, challenging time in the UK at that time. We had lots of industrial disputes and the, the most famous victory, the miners' strike. Uh, and then we had quite a lot of race riots at that time, lots of disturbance in our communities. And then the football violence thing was really at its kind of zenith in the UK at the time. So I was involved in quite a lot of that in the role that I had there and uh, came to faith partway through um, that, uh, that career. Then I uh, took what I thought would be a brief career break to move on to the second thing, which was working with young people. And so locally in Harrow, which is the Salvation Army Church uh, I came to faith in at, and um, I... Um, uh, yeah, I, I wanted to work with young people, wanted to to work with young people, engage young people, share the amazing story of Jesus with young people. And uh, that brief career break turned into the next 12 years. So, uh, yeah, it was amazing and uh, ended up uh, working with the Salvation Army uh, for uh, a decade as um, 
well, the leader of this thing called the mission team, which when we were involved in all sorts of things, uh, certainly sharing the good news of Jesus with as many people that we could find that we would listen, but also training events, leadership development, lots of mentoring and training and raising up of young leaders, uh, and then running events, uh, probably the biggest, most well-known was this thing called Roots that we ran. And um, so I did that, very fortunate, did that uh, for uh, 10 years and amazingly privileged and blessed and yeah, just uh, yeah, very very honouring time. I was uh, I look back on it as one of the kind of peak uh, periods of my life, not just my job, and such a privilege to be involved in in those things during that time. And then um, yeah, at the end of the nineties, I was in in Africa. I was doing some leadership training in ninety seven, uh, and uh, also I was in Johannesburg. I was taken to visit a, a, an AIDS baby home. We might talk about this later on. I saw from your questions. But yeah, met a little girl there, fell in love, and um, so that was a quite a Catholic event for us tried to adopt her, bring her into our family, but uh, it didn't work out. So anyway, we started um, fundraising. And uh, so that meant then in 2000, I then started two organizations, really, uh, which is uh, what I now still sow my life into, which is the nonprofit organization, We See Hope, which we'll talk about later. And then the leadership development, uh, kind of uh, leadership coaching and advisory uh, business that I run called Signify. And that's what I've been doing for the last 22 years. And I spend my working days um, with senior leaders in corporate organizations, helping them be better leaders. Um, I have a, a basic, my, my elevator pitch for my role is, you know, I help individuals, teams, and organizations answer one question. People often ask, well, what's the question? I say, well, the question is, what things need to be true, present, or absent in your life to be at the top of your game? And that's all I do for a job. I help individuals, teams, and organizations answer that question. And, um, and so, yeah, that's, that's what I get paid to do. And I see myself something as an entrepreneur, really, because I set up the business to cover all of our bills, to cover all of our costs, so then we could just serve and bless the cause, the charity. And so it's a, um, it's a, a profitable corporate commercial business that has the, a philanthropic output and outcome. And uh, so, yeah, that's what I do. In my day job now and then very privileged to work with leaders new well privileged to work with leaders all over the world so um involved in a great deal of travel although that's lessened obviously uh, a lot and i travel on zoom um these days to to speak to leaders as i am with you today Mark. yeah so i'm here in sweden you're there in the uk yep. uh, so we're, we're grateful for the technology uh, which makes oh, yeah. these things happen so, uh, well, that's thank you for that introduction, and uh, we're gonna we look forward to getting into some of that as well, particularly. Also, sorry, also married for thirty six years. <laughs> oh yeah, it. don't forget that; it's important. Yeah, no, maybe. And I got three wonderful uh, grown up uh, adult children: uh, Jake, Yasmin, and Isabel. And Yasmin married to my favourite son in law, Axel. Uh, so yeah, that's the great privilege of my life to be involved in that family. That's wonderful. Yeah, and you're just uh, a new empty nester, right? Yeah, relatively new. Yeah, I'm still grieving. I hate it, but um, you know, I hate it. I just it, just all the uh, the only noise now in the house uh, is the golf channel that is regularly on in the. Okay. Yeah, that's how. I was. He was so so musical. She was always uh, always playing or listening or singing music, and uh, yeah, I miss that. But hey, it's an important part of a life journey, right? And also, although I grieve it, uh, it's also a, a opens up doors of new opportunity as well. You know, so it's fantastic. Great. Well, yeah, once again, thanks for that introduction. We'll get into some of that, particularly the We See Hope and you as an entrepreneur, pioneer, um, and, and connecting that with mission and our understanding the mission. And one of the questions we often ask is, what was your idea of mission that you perhaps inherited growing up? 
and how might that have changed? Yeah, I, think that's a, I think it's a really interesting question. I had to think about the question actually as to, as to what you're actually asking. So I think my perception as a young person certainly was that um, mission, you know, the, the looking for ways to express the evangel, the good news of Jesus, was really done on Sundays uh, and was done by and large by a professional. And um, I really had no sense of growing up uh, in, in, in the church and I was, you know, I went, two, three times every Sunday. Uh, and um, uh, I had no sense of anything other than that. So I think my, uh, growing up, uh, and certainly into my late teens, when I first came to faith, you know, in my early 20s, um, I, it was very much a kind of a Sunday-driven, professionally-driven thing. And, um, you know, it was by the paid professionals. That was their job. Our job was to give some money so they could do that. And then our job was to go out on Sundays into our local community and play some music, sing some song, preach some words. So that that was, you know, that's probably a very broad and banal kind of description. But that's that's that was my as I thought about it. That's what I recall. How it's changed, I think, is is really interesting, or how it's changing because I don't think it's changed yet, really. Um, so I think I think the church in the certainly in the northern hemisphere in the Western world grew up with very much the kind of Anglican parish system that church is local. And I think in, in lots of rural communities, that's still very much the, the, the norm where people live in one community, they worship in the same community and they work in the same community where they work on the, in the fields or on, on the land or in some way. I think the urban centres, that's changed dramatically. And for many urbanites, you know, which is million, you know, you know, hundreds of millions of people around uh, the, uh, certainly the Northern Hemisphere, it's changed a lot. The church is now translocal. So people will live in one community. They may well worship in another community. They'll work in yet another community and they might socialize or go to the gym in yet another community. So we are translocal. And, and I think that is a shift that we're still figuring out as a church how to respond to the translocal nature of how people spend their time. Mm. And so you know, I believe in the local church, local church, the hope of the world. Absolutely. But I think the question of how then that local church does its job and fulfills its mission to equip the saints to kind of do their job, to do their work. Um, I'm not sure we've answered that question as effectively as we need to. And I think one of the dynamics of that is uh, because church is far less local now because people live these kind of transient translocal lives. And I think we've not yet figured that one out, or at least that's my, my observation. I think the other thing that I think is beginning to start to change is there has been a really healthy move uh, away from the, the work of the evangel, the good news teller is not just the job of the paid professional. In fact, I think the job of the paid professional as we look to scripture is not to do the job at all. You know, the job of the pastor, the leader, the teacher is to train and teach people, to equip people, to equip everyone else to do that. That's not their job. And as a friend of mine once said, you know, we have a problem off in the church. That if the frontline troops think they're the backline troops and the backline troops think they're the frontline troops, there's going to be a problem. You know, and I think that's one of the challenges that the professional, the kind of professionalization of the clergy, the clericalization of mission and ministry has led us to that point, whereas actually the job of the priest is to prepare the people of God for the work and the, jo and the job of the people is to do the work. 
Yeah. But we end up in a bizarre situation where the job of the people was to pay the professional to do the work. And I think that has probably hindered the effectiveness of our mission for a long time. And so I think there has been a shift or there is a shift whereby there's a growing realization that actually the job of the, you know, to be the evangel, to be the good news and to be proclaimers of the good news is not the job of a paid professional. It's the job of every single follower of Jesus to share that good news to anyone and, and with anyone that will listen wherever they might well be, which, as I say, is increasingly translocal. And those, I think, are the, the changes that have taken place. And, of course, the, the other big dramatic change that has uh, taken place is kind of the digitization of communication and relationships. You know, uh, increasingly people spend time digitally in relationship, you know, um, it's nothing I don't think I've ever been involved in a gaming session online with other people, you know, but young people today, they're at school all day with their mates and then they're on, you know, they're gaming all evening with their mates, same group of people there. And of course there's this thing, constant consistency, constancy of their lives. Whereas I used to go to school with my, you know, when my mates were, and then I come home to my family. And I, so I think the, the digitization of communication relationship is having, and will continue to have a profound impact on how we think and understand mission and i think covid is and the pandemic and lockdowns is teaching us some important early lessons about how we might need to think a little bit about that yeah that's really interesting i mean three enormous shifts that many of us are grappling with uh, and figuring out what tools we need to navigate that new terrain yeah. um actually when you talked about the digitalization i, I was at my uh, brother-in-law's wedding some couple of years ago and uh He's, I sat on a table with a group of his friends and it was the first time they'd ever met in real life. They'd all, they'd all met playing uh, <laughs> games. <laughs> I just couldn't get my head around it. I was supposed to be present, like thinking, you know, celebrating the wedding, but I just couldn't wrap my head around how these people had never met, but they were all at a wedding together. Isn't that fascinating? Well, it's interesting. So my, my, um, my father-in-law died a couple of weeks ago. And so we're just in the middle now of, of organising his funeral and he has kind of two families, a step family over in Canada, uh, where he, after his, my mother-in-law died, he, he married again, lovely family over there um, and uh, family over here. And of course, without traveling one mile from their front room, they're going to join the funeral, you know, which is going to be streamed live on Facebook, you know? And, and so I just think there's something, and, and that will be an experience, you know, is it as intimate as the normal speech? Well, no, in my opinion. But what's really interesting is when you listen to young people talk about what it's like to game, it feels like they say we're in the room together. Mm. You know, there's that really interesting advert on TV in the UK at the moment where these two guys are gaming with each other. They've met online, they're gaming with each other, and they're getting really excited doing this gaming. Uh, and they both, in the advert, knock on the wall to tell the next door neighbor to shut up without realizing that actually this is the person they're talking to online, you know. And I, so I think, I think there's something, there's an emerging intimacy in that gaming environment, which someone like me doesn't really understand, but I think is really important for us to understand as a church community in terms of how we understand how people relate and communicate and engage in meaningful, in their lives, meaningful activity. And I think that presents us with opportunities as well as challenges as a church. Hmm. Yeah, definitely. Okay, I've got a question to you. you you've... Um... From what I understand, and also, I mean, I know you a little bit as well from being a young person in the Salvation Army. Uh, I've seen you in different... No need to crack that age gag. We'll call <laughs> Keep going. Uh, I've seen you in various like pioneering spaces from a, from a distance, and, and you, you have pioneered. You've been, a, you've been involved in church planting. You've been involved in equipping 
missionaries setting up um, teams to to kind of support local churches and mission in in communities. Uh, you've you've been involved in setting up a charity um, uh, with uh, We See Hope and and number of other things. How do you how do you um, how would you talk about and describe your foundational calling and how does that impact all those things, all those spaces? Well, there's a small question. Um, so I, well, I think the important thing is my, my prime calling is that as a follower, right? I'm a follower of Jesus. In fact, when people that are from a non-church background, um, you know, we end up in conversation. That's how I describe myself as a follower of Jesus. I think the term Christian is very loaded and or preloaded for lots and lots of people. So I often, and I, and I see myself as a follower of Jesus, a follower of the way. So if you like, that's my prime calling, right? Um, I'm a child of God and I'm a follower of Jesus. That's, I'm a disciple of his. And um, that revelation, that understanding that came to me fully anyway, uh, in my, um, well, when I was 19, nearly 20 years of age, I changed my life. The fact that about 2000 years ago, Jesus came, he lived, he died, he loved, and then uh, having died, he rose from the dead for the reasons the Bible says he did in terms of to, you know, carry the can for my sin, for your sin, and to actually give humankind that second chance to be reconciled with God and live the life that we were created to live. That understanding changed my life. I could not believe it. I remember saying to someone, I can't believe no one ever told me this. Again, I'm sure many people tried uh, to tell this gobby, mouthy young person that good news, but it uh, just dawned on me uh, in a conversation I had with someone uh, those many years ago. And that understanding still shapes my life every single day. And the prime, the prime identity then, if you like, in calling is that I'm primarily, I'm a follower. That's who I am. I'm a follower of Jesus. But I think then, you know, and, and that's more about who I am as to what I do. And I think sometimes we get confused about that. Um, and in, an, you know, in denominations like the Salvation Army, we get really, really confused about that. You know, there is a song we have in our kind of internal liturgy which has the line, by the pathway of duty flows the river of God's grace. And we understand the poetry of the line. We understand what the, the writer was trying to communicate, but actually it's nonsense. You know, we are primarily not people of duty. We are people of relationship who follow, you know, our God that we're in relationship with. It's not about duty. It's about relationship. And what we do flows out of love, not out of duty. You do what you do as a husband because you love you know, or because you might get in trouble if you don't do it, but you do what you do out of love. And so I think that's my prime call. I would say it's always that loving relationship with my, my God and um, everything I try to do as a leader, as a pioneer, as an entrepreneur, as a father, as a husband, as a friend, as a son, as a brother, it just flows out of love. That's what it flows out of, that identity. And then I suppose over the last, you know, as you look at the gifts that you've got or the things that God entrusted you to, and, uh, and I, when I actually self-reflect, I, I actually feel very limited. There's so many, I can't really do anything practical. I'm pretty useless when it comes to um, doing practical things. Um, but I think there's a number of things that I, I would probably say with, with a degree of confidence that I think God has called and gifted me to do. Uh, one of those is most definitely, and that which, you know, uh, is defining for me, is as, a, is as a good news teller of stories to tell the good news story of Jesus to anyone and everyone who will listen, be they clients of mine, be they friends of mine, be they people I meet at the gym, you know, people I meet on a golf course, you know, I, I, I love just sharing that story of Jesus, you know, because as we know that if it's true, it's not just true for religious people, it's true for everybody. 
You know, if Jesus is who he said he is, he is who he said he is, the Lord of life and the universe and everything for everybody, not just those who say they believe. So I love telling that story. I love talking to people about the way that Jesus changed my life and has the capacity to change theirs. So I think that that would that's certainly one of my core identities and, and, and core drivers. And uh, I, in lots of ways, I'm as excited about that now as I am when I was a new Christian as a policeman. Uh, I wasn't a very sensitive uh, new Christian. I was pretty blunt. I think I've probably offended more people than I attracted to the faith. In fact, I found out a number of years later that some of my police colleagues, when we we're on night duty, they begged not to be put on night duty with me in a car. Because where can you go, right? Where can you hide? <laughs> you got this loudmouth religious zealot nut in the seat next to you. There's nowhere to go, right? So, oh but anyway, yeah, more zeal than more zeal than uh, wisdom. But uh, exciting days, and um, so I think that's that's a core part of who I am. Very much uh, just someone who feels entrusted to tell that story and share that story with anyone that will listen. Then I think to, to use a bit of religious jargon. Uh, I think I, as I think about it and categorize it, I think there's that kind of apostolic prophetic thing. You know, I'm a I'm a starter. I'm a definite starter. I'm a better starter than I'm a manager. I, I just in my DNA, in my bones, in everything that I do, I'm always looking for new ways or fresh ways or better ways to get certain things done. Sometimes, if I'm fair, that's driven by laziness. There must be an easier, quicker way to do this, you know, which I think is laziness rather than gifting. But a lot of times is how do we fix this? How do we make this better? How do we do something fresh and new that can engage a whole bunch of people to get involved in doing something substantive and significant, which could change some things? So I think, I think there's that, you know, kind of... Uh, what about the prophetic side? How does the prophetic... Yeah, so- yeah, so I think that I, th- I think part of that is well, I, I need to say this carefully. Is it see, I, I someone described it once and I really shied away from it, but I, I when I look at my life, I think it's true. I've, I've been seen or I'm experienced and regularly fulfill the role as a leader of leaders. You know, as a young man working with the Salvation Army, I often found myself in rooms with people many years my senior looking to me for advice and leadership. And, and, and my ego kind of really enjoyed that. But when I had the humility to pause and reflect on that, that's a really scary situation uh, to be in. Um, and uh, I, th- but I think actually that that's one of the things that I've learned is one of the roles I find myself in now as a professional still uh, is to be a leader of leaders. And, and I think the, you know, the kind of prophetic thing comes out and hopefully then the, the messages you bring to that, the lifestyle you lead in the context of that, the things that you call people to within that apostolic leader of leaders type role, you know, and, and I think your, your words, the most challenging aspect of that is that your words need to be matched by your life. Otherwise your life kill your words. And that's always been the great challenge for the prophets, right? To, to live a life that is prophetic as opposed to just uttering words that are seen or experienced as prophecy. And I think um, that certainly is my greatest challenge. I believe a number of things really, really deeply, and I find it much easier to talk about them than live them. But that is the challenge, I think, for authenticity, because whether anyone agrees with, even when people disagree with your religious convictions, and I have many of my friends or my clients that would disagree with my religious convictions, my hope is, though, they see an authenticity in my life they will say, well, at least he takes what he says he believes seriously. And I think the foundation, the platform for being a credible and authoritative apostle slash prophet is for that to be that your message is matched by your life. And I 
I have failed at that many times, but that is my daily conviction that that's what I need to try and do. And I think the other last thing that I would kind of own as a, if you like, as a form of conviction in terms of identity would, would be that of a, you know, some of a social justice advocate slash warrior. You know, I, I don't know if it's because I was bullied quite a bit when I, because I was small when I was at school, less small now, clearly. But um, <coughs> I, I, I find myself deeply riled and deeply upset around injustice. There are certain things I can't watch. I mean, this might sound shocking to people, but I, I couldn't watch Schindler's List. I knew what it was about, the scenes of lips, couldn't watch it, wouldn't watch it. I haven't watched Whole Trail Rwanda. Can't watch it. I didn't watch the accused movie. I can't, I, I find myself seething with anger and upset when I see injustice. So injustice. So I certainly don't want to watch it as entertainment. Um, but so I think that, and I think that that flows very strongly into the work of We See Hope. There's this sense of Again, you can, you can, your self-awareness around it is important. I don't want to make myself sound anything more than I am than a bloke just trying to keep a promise, which is basically all I am. But, um, yeah, I feel, I feel a sense of responsibility for those beautiful uh, young people uh, in Africa we have the privilege of working with. Yeah. Um, I feel that deeply and acutely, a sense of responsibility for them and for their welfare. And so I feel very responsible that I try and do my job well just a little contribution that I can make and hopefully telling their stories well and, and encouraging people to who are inspired by their stories to donate some of their resources to that cause. I feel that identity acutely. That's great. That's really helpful as well. There's a lot, lot to take away from that, particularly around like understanding of the prophetic and how that spills out into heart for justice and, and changing the world. And, and one of the reasons that like, we've got you on the show is because you've just been awarded an MBE from the Queen. Uh, perhaps should have said that at the beginning. Um, uh, that's, a, that's an award from the Queen for someone who's, I guess, had sustainable impact, significant impact in the community and beyond. Um, and a big part of that has been the organisation We See Hope. Can you tell us a bit about the story? What What's that about? And maybe about the MBE? Well, you're very kind. <laughs> it's, yeah, I don't, I don't do well with praise. So, um, no, it, it's so that those that aren't English, it's uh, the Queen has these different honours she gives out uh, for people uh, who they believe have committed themselves for a period of time and have made some kind of impact. So anyway, we were my wife, my wife and I were very privileged to to receive uh, one of those from her for our work with vulnerable young people in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, well, yeah, we should have very forgive me the the personal story, but um, as I alluded to, I met this little girl in an AIDS baby home. She was an 18-month-old toddler, HIV positive. She'd been abandoned by her mother, sex worker, nine months before, who said she was going to come back for her. And I remember them saying to me at the time, I said, look, you know, here's this little girl. Her name was Zodwa. Um, and they said, we, no one can, she's severely traumatised from her time on the streets. No one could get any response from her. So we had two of our own young kids at the time. So in my kind of young fatherly arrogance, I tried all my best dad moves to try and get some kind of response. And I, yeah, I failed completely. Anyway, so a little bit later on, I'm in the playroom waiting to get picked up by the team to, to head off to our next appointment. And they start to bring the kids in. And the first kid they brought in uh, um, is this little girl. So I decided in my head beforehand, I wasn't going to pick up any kids because it is a heartbreak hotel, 60 kids, all HIV positive, all under the age of five. And um, I thought, I'm not going to do that. Anyway, she's sitting on the floor looking at me, this little one. I'm looking at her, I'm thinking, oh, this is ridiculous. So I picked her up 
and she nestled her head into my neck and that was it really. I spent 20 minutes with her, changed my life forever. Changed my life forever. So I phoned Wendy, my wife, up that night. I said, hey, darling, I fall in love with another woman. Can I bring her home, please? <laughs> she said, pardon? And uh, so anyway, so I came back. We talked about it. And um, we talked to some people in the community uh, about having HIV in our home with our kids, medical folks. Talked to the school about having HIV in the school. And at the end of a few months, we thought, okay, let's give it a go. So we spent the next eight months trying to adopt her into our family. That wasn't possible. Uh, we found out at the end of that month, which we found really quite distressing, having prepared ourselves, our two existing kids at the time, Jake and Yasmin, for this little one to become part of our family. But then we kind of came to the point, we thought to ourselves, okay, if we can't adopt this one kid physically, we believe that God brought this little one to our life for a reason. Let's commit the rest of our lives as a couple to try and do all we can to try and do something about all the other little boys and girls, just like Zodba, the existing substance in Africa, at the time, 15 million because the AIDS pandemic, uh, orphans in Sub-Saharan Africa. So that was the beginning of the journey, really. And uh, that was in 1998. And so we started raising money. You may recall, Mike, we're there. We started handing out 10 pound notes to people in their thousands and um, managed to borrow over those two and a half years, half a million pounds from people and uh, from some very generous, uh, wealthy folks uh, and gave out in 10 pound denominations uh, to over 50,000 people. And uh, that raised 2.3 million quid. And that's how we got started financially. So, um, yeah, so we ended up um, setting up We See Hope, which is an organization now that works um, to help vulnerable young people develop skills to create sustainable futures, to use your phrase. And, um, yeah, we work in five Southern and East African countries now. We've worked in many, but we focus on these five target countries now, which is Uganda, Kenya, Zimbabwe, Malawi, and Tanzania. We have an office uh, with our Africa director, Oswald Malunda, in uh, Tanzania, and offices in Uganda and Kenya, and then voluntary offices in Germany and uh, the US. And then uh, we have the main office here in London. And again, I don't run it. I've never run it. So I'm a good starter, not a manager. And um, so we've got a great team uh, led by Mark Glenn, who's the CEO. And um, yeah, we, well, we've seen from the data that we've gathered recently, we've we, we raised the charity because we set up the charity in 2000. We'd always raised a lot of money before that. But the charity's raised about 25 million sterling uh, well, since it was established. And there's probably another couple of million on top of that we've raised. So 26, 27 million is what we've raised financially, um, all in all. And um, from the data that we've gathered, and it's all in catch, we've got about 22 years worth of data now, or 21 years worth of data. There's about in fact, if I was to turn the app on, I could tell you it's about 775,000 people that have gone through our programs in that time. So, um, yeah, it's amazing. And, uh, again, all I do is, is, is raise money. Wendy and I, we're voluntary fundraisers. Uh, I gift a third of my working life to, to um, fundraise for it in, in different ways. Um, but, yeah, that's what, that's what God's given us to do. And as Wendy said in the little note on Facebook and, um, and LinkedIn, you know, we feel very, very fortunate to have received this honor on behalf of the entire organization in many ways. But as you talk to us about it, you say, what, what's it all about? Why is it all about? We're just trying to keep a promise we made. That's it. We made a promise. We're keeping it. Because when you make promises, you keep them. That's the point, right? We're just trying to keep a promise. We also feel incredibly privileged to be invited to keep that promise because it's an amazing and inspiring journey. Yeah, so that's what we do. And again, it's it, the, the main thing is really in trying to help young people, vulnerable people in communities develop skills, vocational skills, so they can take responsibilities uh, for their own futures um, 
financially, educationally, vocationally uh, moving forward. So that's what we do. Well done. It's great to hear. Um, I just got a question about, so that's a long journey. I mean, 22 years, 21 years um, and incredible impact upon many people. What have you learned about sustainable change along that journey? What principles? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah. So, I mean, I I think, and that's the question that every single development organization is wrestling with. And if they're not, they should be, but I'm pretty sure they are because you, you know, I heard that I, I was very privileged to share a platform with the president of Ghana last year uh, at St. Andrews University. And he used this wonderful phrase, which I was really inspired by. He said, my vision is for Africa beyond aid. So Africa that is autonomous and independent, you know, and very proud nations within Africa. And so they're able to take responsibility for their own peoples and have the wherewithal to be able to do that uh, financially, as well as, res- you know, all the other resources that are required. And so I think sustainability um, and, and certain development work as a development organization, I think there's a few things we've, we've learned. So the most important thing we've learned is it's about the local. It's about the local. And, you know, we worked out pretty quickly that the people that were going to know best what to do in Africa wasn't going to be a white middle class bloke from Wimbledon, you know. So we very quickly got involved in working with and alongside of uh, what we now call partner organizations who do all of the direct delivery. We don't do that. Our partner organizations do that because we, we think they're the people that are best suited to deliver services and programs to their peers. It was interesting that during the pandemic, in one sense, it was a moment that we as an organization were made for. I mean, it presented with all sorts of challenges, particularly fundraising challenges, but lots of NGOs in Africa had to send their workers home to their home countries. Well, we didn't have to do any of that because all of our people, where they work is where they live. So they didn't go anywhere. So localism, I think, is one of the key things driven by local organizations who you're in relationship with, you build trust with, where there's accountability, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that, when it's owned by and driven by local people, that's when it's sustainable. You know, and if we just you know, jump in and parachute in as a big NGO, build this, do this, do that, and then, you know, jump back out. Not sustainable. So I think that's the thing. And many, you know, many people in the development space have known that for, for many years. We haven't come up with that insight. It's just, you know, that's a lesson we learned very quickly. I think the other thing is, um, is the willingness to foster innovation. I, to, be able, to be willing to take risks. You'll never innovate if you're not willing to take risks of failure. And I think one of the things our partners, or I hope they were saying, certainly they've said it in feedback to us, is that one of the things about us as an organization is we're in for the long haul. I think we're quite difficult to get money from initially, but once you're in, you're in. And, you know, even when you fail, you're in because we're sticking with you because we try, we, we experiment, we work, we evaluate, what can we do different, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And a lot of our work and the work of the professionals on the ground, Oswald and his colleagues, uh, is about mentoring and coaching and developing and helping to build capacity in those partner organizations. And so I think that's the second thing, that if you're to be sustainable, you're going to have to learn to innovate. If you're going to innovate, you have to be willing to take risks. You know, And I think lots of, um, voluntary organizations struggle with that because obviously they feel responsible for other people's money. Uh, there's been no identity to them. But I think that having the kind of risk gene in your DNA is, in, is an incredibly poor, important part of building sustainability. 
And then our third, I think the third thing then, you know, the local, the innovation risk piece, the other thing is longevity, is longevity commitment. You know, I am no expert at all. I'm just a privileged partner that has the privilege to journey with people. But lots of these communities are very, very complex communities. The countries are very complex places with all sorts of challenges. If you are not in for the long haul, if you're not willing to do the hard yards over the long haul, you'll never see anything change. I think those are three, well, I'm sure there are many others that people brighter than me can articulate, but those are three things that are, that are key to long-term sustainable change. That's great. Just to maybe take a turn, um, what kind of, um, or big ideas, theological ideas, mythological ideas, maybe metaphors, um, images, or stories from scripture have really influenced um, your life and the way you think and the way you see and move in, in the world? Well, I think, I, again, there, as I listed those off, there were lots of them, so I've tried to, I've, I've kind of come down to a couple. Um, so I, th- I think is this, that, you know, our, our faith um, is not a transcendent faith. It's a faith that's defined by incarnation, not transcendence. The word became flesh. The word became flesh. And I think for all of our theology, all of our missiology and all of our ecclesiology, that needs to be foundation. And so I think the understanding that, you know, in our communities, in our relationships, in our, in our workplaces, incarnation precedes proclamation is really, really important. And I think part of the challenge to the evangelical church community that I'm, you know, part of and proud to be part of for many years is I think we've got that the wrong way around sometimes. And we thought we have the right to proclaim, to proclaim before we've incarnated. And I think particularly in that translocal world that I talked about, I think incarnation in those diverse, you know, kind of trans community environments, um, incarnation is key. Because as you incarnate the life of Jesus in and through who you are in those communities, in those places of work, in those places of education, in those places of, you know, social life, that earns you the right to proclaim. So I think, I think incarnation and what that means to, be an in, you know, to incarnate the life of Jesus into how we live and move and have our being every day, I think that's, that is a profound um, influence upon how I think about who I am as a as a follower and how I try to do the things that I've been entrusted to do. I think the, the, um, the second thing, it was a metaphor as a patch is, is, is I, I spent quite a lot of time in the early noughties speaking on and thinking about um, the story of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego um, taken into captivity by Nebuchadnezzar and his legions and uh, people of these, you know, the Jewish faith, who then in a foreign land in Babylon sought to live out, sought to find ways in this alien land, having been given new names and new identities and new menus and new language and new locations and new everything, sought to live out their faith authentically and draw some lines in the sand about things they wouldn't compromise. And, and I think that there's a couple of things about that that, were, that I found really inspiring. One is it says of them in, in the beginning of the story 
that having been, you know, it says that the, the, you know, as was the policy of empire building those days, they could, they took the cream, they took the the talent individuals, and they they creamed them off, and they sought to inculcate them into their society to help them to assimilate into Babylonian culture by giving them those new things. And he said this: he said the king could find none throughout all the land as good as they. So even I just find again coming back to this incarnation thing, yeah, even in that highly compromised. Babylonian exiled kind of environment, they sought to be excellent. They sought to be the best at what they did. Now, there are some theological problems with that because, of course, when Nebuchadnezzar committed genocide, these guys did the paperwork. That's quite a challenge to think about. But basically, they, they were his civil servants, right? And he said the king could find none throughout the land as good as they. So that even that compromised environment, as they incarnated the life of Jesus, as they lived healthier lives, as was seen by the, the episode with the food that they then refused to eat and the food they had it, they were the best. They were distinctive. They were marked out as distinctive people in that compromised environment. And so here they were trying to be distinctive in the very, very gray world in which they inhabited and had their being every day. And as I've thought about that story, it seems to me that often as, as people of faith, um, we kind of look to the book of Acts as our context. You know, we say, hey, we'd love to be a, an, an Acts seasoned church, like the church in Acts. We want to be that kind of church. And in some countries around the world, certainly where we are, where the church is newly formed. But, but I don't think that's our missiological context, whereby the church was in ascendancy, as we see in the book of Acts. I don't think that's a context, particularly in the Northern Hemisphere and the Western world. I think our context is less found in the book of Acts and more found in the book of Daniel, like aliens in a foreign land. I think that, again, without getting too wordy and, and, and um, kind of theological, philosophical about it, but I think that is our missiological context. Yeah. That is our missiological context. And so the lesson that we have to learn, there is much to learn from the apostles in the book of Acts I think there is also much to learn from um, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that sought to be distinctive and drew actually only two lines around all idolatry in their very, very gray world. But because of their witness, an emperor came to faith, and as did his nation at that time. And I think that story inspires me, that actually as we seek to live our lives authentically, in an alien land, a land that isn't defined, it isn't shaped by the beliefs that people like you and me hold. But in that land, it is possible against all of the odds to live authentic, distinctive lives. And those lives will not be crushed, but actually can be used by God to create the most profound impact and influence in the world. That's and that I find immensely inspiring. And on that note, I was just thinking... Um... Uh, I mean, you spent uh, you spent a lot of your time outside the church walls, if you like, church with a small c. Um, you, you spend time in the marketplace or in various, you, you know, settings, uh, mixing with various kinds of people, um, not just in the UK but uh, uh, abroad as well. Has the church? Have you, how has the church supported you in that role of being on the, you know? perhaps you could say the frontiers of mission in that missiological place. Well, I say two, I say two things about that that kind of might sound contradictory. The first is, you know, through relationships immensely, you know, friends, leaders, Salvation Army officers, pastors, core officers, 
buddies, you know, people I've journeyed with in faith and have been friends and, and, and been encouraging friends. And I'd include your parents in that mix, to be honest, Mark, uh, who are older than me. Remember that. Um, the um, people have been very encouraging to be personally, you know, uh, and, and I think I might be saying something about that uh, at the end. But so I, th I think um, through through relational networks, I, th I think, you know, the church uh, has I mean, I don't think I'd be where I am if it wasn't for that. So I think relationally, very much so. I think institutionally, though, um, it's pretty poor. And, and I think that's because of a, of a kind of our, our, our ecclesiology and probably our missiology, how we think about this. It's really interesting. When you look at most denominations, most church networks, the only thing that they're really interested in are, are, are really, number one, how much you give financially, and number two, what you do with your spare time. So I, I, I can only speak of the Salvation Army, I guess I've been for so long. The Salvation Army records a number of things about me as an individual. Number one, how often I'm there, I, what I'm doing in my spare time, and, and also what I do, how I contribute, how I utilize that spare time. And secondly, how much I give. Those are the only things I record. What I do with the vast majority of my time in my working week they don't know about and don't care about and aren't concerned about because that question's never, ever asked, ever. It's, it's not relevant to our denomination. It's not relevant to most denominations. And I think institutionally, because of this thing we talked about earlier, of the, it's the Sunday focus and the professional focus, I think it's probably because of that. Because if you actually think about it, so even though I may feel a, a profound sense of calling to the marketplace, to the world of business, to be who I am, as I described earlier, our denominations, it's, it's irrelevant to them. It's utterly irrelevant because it's not a question they ask. If I wasn't telling, no one would know because they never ask the question, what are you between, between nine o'clock on a Monday morning and five o'clock on a Friday evening? You know, no one ever asks and because no one cares because what we're concerned about is how much we give and what we do with our spare time. And I think, within the evangelical community and within most mainstream denominations, that is such a profound flaw. It is arguably one of the most significant barriers to effective mission yeah. in the Western world today. Yeah, that, absolutely. That, that kind of dualistic fracture between the professional priesthood and what people like me do every day. And I, and I so, so again, I have been immensely supported by lots of gracious, kind, generous people that despite the many flaws of my character, and there are many, have been very kind and supportive. Um, but I think institutionally, there is a flaw in our theology and our missiology around that, which needs fixing, needs fixing urgently. Mm. The frontline troops can be supported as the frontline troops and backline troops can be released to do their job. Yeah, I totally agree. That, that picture, that story needs to change for this time and this cultural moment, missional moment that we're in. Um, that's a, that's a crucial piece. I, I think we've got 10 minutes left or maybe a little okay. less. So if we just, maybe we can get two more questions in and I'd love to ask you. And forgive uh, me if I waffle on too much. I apologise. I've got a big mouth. Forgive me. It's all right. It's great stuff and it's really helpful. I, I wanted to ask you about, um, yeah, we, we, we've kind of alluded to the fact that it's, we're in a massive season of shifts, up, upheaval on so many levels. Um uh, particularly in the last two years, uh, what lessons and revelations or signs of hope have you seen? Um, what's, what's given you hope? 
Well, I think I think there are. I mean, let, let's just acknowledge together that this has been an atrocious season for so many people. You know, people who've lost loved ones, people who've lost jobs, people who've lost opportunities, lost their homes, lost family. I mean, it's just it's been awful for so many people and still is, particularly uh, in, in other parts of the world that they don't have the resources that people like you and I have because they don't live in countries like ours. So so let's just acknowledge that it's been it's been awful. And if anything has shown the global divide between rich and poor, you know, it's this, you know, the iniquity of vaccine disbursement and accessibility and delivery is atrocious. And in this day and age, we as a, you know, highly resourced Northern Hemisphere should be embarrassed by that. And hopefully that will, will change in the years that lie ahead. I think, um, I think there's some things that I, I've been really encouraged by or that, that have encouraged me. So firstly, it's just the, the relevance of the church in local communities. And if we're honest, it wouldn't just be the church, it would be religious communities, right? Because, you know, it, it's the religious communities that really, really stepped up and were networked. And my good buddy, Russ Rook, who got an OB uh, at the same time that we got our MB, um, you know, he was responsible for gathering together over 1,200 church networks during the pandemic to help try and coordinate and align how much of that took place. And there were lots of people outside of that to us. And the church delivered millions and millions and millions and millions of meals to people and cared for people, resourced people and supported people. And I think one of the exciting things I see that I know is taking place are the conversations with government and the faith community as to how we can be more joined up and how we can be more and more part of the conversation about how actually you resource and you support, particularly the most vulnerable in communities. And, um, and I think in America, they have, that, they have a better balance of that in a sense in which say, when people are down on their luck in this country, we say, well, the government needs to sort that out. In America, they say when people are down, they say, well, that's the job of civil society slash faith communities. And I, I'm encouraged by the, the extent to which the faith communities and the church in particular uh, have, have um, come in, if you like, from the margins of, of lots of people's mind to actually the very center of the conversation saying, wow, it's this community of people that really stepped up. Wow, they're doing that kind of stuff every single week. We need to talk. So I've been greatly encouraged by that. I think the, the relevance and the, the church in the marketplace, in the conversation, I think that's, I, I think there's more of that taking place than there was uh, for quite a number of years. And that I'm really encouraged by. Also being really encouraged by just what I've seen here in my street. As I'm talking to you, I look over my laptop and I'm looking out at my street. It's a quite a busy road in Southwest London. And people who live just a few doors away, it's the nature of life in these communities. You don't, you don't know them. What's interesting that during lockdown, we started to not only get to know people, but find out who didn't know anybody and make sure they were looked after. And just it's really quite moving how people started to connect with each other in, in this, on this busy road, right? I mean, you've got to look left and right two or three times before you cross this road. You know, it's, it's a busy old road. And yet people are reaching out to each other, finding, connecting with people. And I, I've made a new, a new friend down the road, a man who was in lockdown, didn't come out of his house for 16 months because of his severe health conditions. So we've created a, a friendship and, and, and that's been happening all up and down this street. So I think on the positive side, it, it's been really interesting people finding each other in different ways. That's been really encouraging. I think what's quite distressing though is how lonely so many people are. Forget the pandemic, they're just lonely. And I think for all the, the good that, you know, uh, wealth and, um, resource and digitization, all, all of the good things that 
have happened in our newly globalized world that are possible. Bizarrely, almost paradoxically, at the exact same time, there are more lonely people than ever. And that's a tragedy. But also for faith communities, a great opportunity to be able to reach out and draw people in to friendship networks who find themselves lonely and isolated. And that, and I'm someone who's got, you know, I'm very privileged to have lots and lots of friends. I'm very fortunate. There are many people I can ring up if I'm in a dark place and who will give me time. Um, and I, I've, I've come to value that in a new way. My friends, my mates, you know, not just their patience to be my friend, because it takes patience to be my friend, uh, but actually just the fact that they're there. They're a really important part of my life. And uh, I'm incredibly thankful for that. And just want to make sure that everybody, you know, or as many people as we can help, can be part of those kind of friendship networks. I've been really inspired by that. That's great. Well, last question. Um, so, uh, you know, people who listen to this, you'll be, uh, yeah, there'll be church planters, there'll be uh, pioneers, there'll be people, um, social entrepreneurs, people involved in community projects. So uh, ver- various types of people in different spaces, pioneering, um, uh, move into to work towards change and impact for people. Um as we've, we've talked about, like we're in a critical moment, there's a lot happening, moment of upheaval, um, and we, we really need a new story or we need to retell our story in a different way um, and, and make sure that we're, we, we're telling a story of a kingdom which is big enough uh, and dynamic enough to, to move the tracks of history and to, and to make the impact that we, we know is reflective of Jesus. Um, what would you say to leaders pioneers folks on the frontiers of mission both in the church in the walls of the church or uh, you know what i mean or people yeah. people in the spaces of uh, the marketplace working to, to for change what would you say encouragement practices wisdom yeah so i'd like to say a few things if i may so first thing is we need you we desperately need you we need you we need you we need you you are needed you might not feel loved but you're desperately needed because one of the challenges of being pioneered is even though you're greatly needed, you're rarely loved <laughs> in organizations or denominations. And so just hear from us. You're needed. You are needed. You're needed by the King of Kings in his kingdom and you're needed by us and part of the church community. Um, the second thing I say is this, is stay close. Stay close to Jesus. Stay close to your mates. Stay close to Jesus. Pray. You know, someone asked me an interview a little while ago, is he, what, what do you regret from the, those years you worked with the Salvation Army? I said, I'm sure there are many things I said I should regret, but there are probably too many for me to remember. Um, but the other two regrets are this, that number one, uh, I don't think I role model very well to people close to me how to be a busy dad and have young kids. I think I could have done that better. I didn't do that well. I should have done that better to the, the Andrews and the Russes and the Marks and the blah, 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 the, the people that uh, I had the privilege of being with uh, over those years. I, I think I could have, I hope I modeled some positive things to them as a leader, but I, I could have done a better job with that. The other thing I regret is we should have prayed more. We were very act, energetic, very active. We should have prayed more. So stay close to Jesus. Pray, 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 pray. 24 seven has revolutionized that for many of us. Pray, pray, pray. Second is stay close to your mates have some and by mates i mean trusting relationships to whom you are accountable people can look you in the eye and ask you what's happening in your thought life what, what, what how you're spending your money you know your relationships your marriage if you're married or whatever just 
be accountable. I think one of the, you know, leaders who aren't accountable very quickly become a liability. And, you know, we know Jesus had his three best mates, right? Peter, James, and John. Yes, he drew them close because he wanted to equip them, empower them for the roles they plays. But one of the reasons I think, which we see it crystal clear, like in the Garden of Gethsemane, the reason he took the three of them aside is because he needed them. Will you tarry with me for one hour? I mean, they let him down by falling asleep, but that's not the point. You know, he needed them. And if the perfect incarnate son under God needs his mates to help him fulfill the will of God, how much more you and I? So stick close to Jesus, stick close to your mates. And then three last quick things. Number one, dream big. Dream big. You follow the God who created the universe. So dream big because there aren't many things that God can't get done in and through you. So give yourself permission to dream big, not small dreams, you know, let them go. Dream, dream big, dream big dreams, dream big dreams. Believe that God can believe that God can. Secondly, be brave and take risk, take risks. And I think the, um, yeah, we just, we're not going to get anything done unless we take some risks. We're not going to change anything that needs changing unless we take some risks. And um, the story of amazing achievements for the, within the history of the church and the world in which it is, is, is women and men who are willing to take risks. So take some, be brave and take some risks. And then finally, stay hungry. Stay hungry. One of the, uh, one of the heroes of my life, uh, in my life, uh, is a lady called uh, June, Sister June. She's an older lady. And um, when uh, I had the privilege of doing her husband's funeral, and uh, she had cared for him on her own after a severe stroke many years before, just day in, day out, week in, week out. And I went to see her after the funeral, a uh, week after. I said, oh, how are you doing? She said, well, I'm doing okay. She said, but I feel a bit guilty, but also I've been praying. And uh, I said, oh, really? I said, what do you feel guilty about? She says, well, she said, I actually feel relieved that Dave has gone. I said, June, stop there. I said, you know, those of us in this church who want to know what covenant marriage looks like, we now know because you've shown us, as you've cared the way you care. So you don't need to feel guilty. You have modeled that for many years now. I said, but what have you been praying about? <laughs> she said this. So this is an elderly woman at this point. She said, well, she, I know God's mission and calling in my life for these last few years is to care for Dave. But now he's gone. I'm asking God, what's the new mission you have for me now? In her late 70s, early 80s, she's still climbing. She's still going. She's still hungry. So when I'm her age, when I grow up, I want to be like her. So be brave, take risks, dream big dreams, and stay hungry. Let me encourage you to do those things. Well, thank you, Phil. Well, well, thank you for the privilege. I hope some of that's of some use or some of interest. And uh, well, bless you guys, because now it's your story, not my story. It's your story. So um, the job of people like me is just to uh, be as helpful and supportive as we can and then get out of the way. So uh, bless you and all that you try and do and all those who listen to this. Bless you and all that you're doing. Thank you very much. Take care. Cheers, buddy. Well, welcome back everybody from that interview. Hopefully you're still with us. Although if you're listening to this, then you are still with us. Yeah, we always do that. Mis yeah. Mistake, <laughs> don't we? Same mistake, yeah. Thanks for staying with us, I should be saying. Um, Mark, thanks for taking us on that interview. Uh, you're welcome. We always start with the question, so I'll, I'll pose it again to you. How, how was it to be in that conversation with Phil? It was a really, really enjoyable. <clears throat> 
um, and quite special for me as well someone I looked up to very much as a young person when I had one foot out the church and one foot in and I was only sh really showing up to these big conferences yeah. dragged along by friends or going with friends and it, those moments where he was speaking were really inspiring so, mm. so it was really special just to come back round and uh, have these conversations so yeah I'm really grateful for the opportunity yeah. and I thought it was a really good podcast there's so much in there which we're going to talk about right yeah absolutely and I mean we can we can stick with you here and I can just ask the question I mean what were some of those significant things what jumped out to you and just uh, yeah grabbed you well think like the thing fresh off my mind because it was the last thing we talked about before we started recording was like one of the quotes he's saying if the frontline troops think they are the background troops and the background troops think they are the frontline troops then we've got a problem yeah and uh, I think we've talked about that, you know, how the role of leaders uh, are often, um, uh, you know, we forget that the main role is to be equippers uh, and catalysts mm. to release the body of Christ. And, and I think it was really interesting to hear that kind of quote, just to bring a different language or a different picture to things that we've we touched on in, in other podcasts, not least yeah. the, the Starfish and the Spirit, which is very much about that. Yeah. So, and we think that's really important, don't we? <clears throat> Yes. We don't. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, how can we be movemental if that, that picture isn't reversed? And he said that's one of the biggest issues of our time. Um, so it goes right to the core of our identity and understanding of who we are, especially those of us who are leading churches and leading this, that and the other. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Emma, how about you? What was uh, grabbing you? Um, I think the thing that I kind of think about after the podcast is how much I agree with some of the things where he was talking about incarnation and working from a local perspective working in terms of their charity with partners on the ground fostering innovation longevity all of those things are principles that I've learned as well through the work that I do in anti-trafficking and you know I couldn't agree more with him and obviously he's way ahead of me in terms of experience and, and influence and all of that kind of thing so it's affirming for me to, to hear that and it's you know it's something that you kind of have to fight for being local I think in the NGO world um, because it's flashier to be working on the national level and mm. doing the bigger projects and you want to create a quick fix um, a big impact um, immediately through campaigns and that kind of thing but the real challenge when it comes to developing communities or responding to crises or responding to um, trauma of individual um, people's lives is to stick with it, mm. to stay with people um, and to dare to focus on the local where there's, there's kind of um, less of the flashy stuff but more of the kingdom impact that we're actually saying that we, mm. that we want. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so I was really encouraged um, that he said that. Yeah, that's good. Uh, I mean, that's where hope is embodied, isn't it? In the local, on the turf. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah, it was also interesting that he was talking about Daniel's context being the missiological context that mm. we should perhaps be yeah. referring to instead really of Acts. Um, I mean, I love the story of Daniel, and I haven't thought of it in that in that way that he put it. But I think he's right. I mean, that would be my experience in my work. What is the missiological paradigm that we're in? Is that what you mean? Yeah, just being an, you know, an alien in the land and yeah. trying to bring the kingdom 
in often small ways into different contexts, collaborating with different types of, of people. Like I work very closely with the police and social mm. services, local government, that kind of thing. Mm. Um, so I can recognise what he's saying and I will definitely ponder that. What, what does that mean and how mm. is that helpful for me to... Um, in terms of the prophetic as well, what, yeah. what, what kind of role do you have uh, in, in, that, in that context? And we are in a very secular context uh, yeah. in this part of the world. Yeah, it's, it's entirely like a whole mindset shift, isn't it? When kind of like whenever you think about missional churches and stuff, you always look at acts and what were they doing and where was the DNA there? And we, we're on a journey of that as well at the moment in our church. And it is, of course, good to look at those strategies and things. But to, to remove yourself and identify another story or another book in the Old Testament as your actual as Phil is saying, that's your, actually your missional context here. Aliens in a foreign land, like you are in the vast, vast minority and it's much more about your integrity and mm. uh, so, so mm. immersing yourself in culture mm. uh, and incarnating. Mm. I wonder how, if that's more relevant for us in Europe mm. than it is in folks in other parts of the world, like the, the US, for example, whether there's a big difference because yeah. I think it really plays into your, uh, your how you understand your identity, where your permissions are. I think he commented what, what on that actually. I think he said in uh, Western Europe, particularly when he was uh, when he was kind of making that point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's very difficult for folks in the US to perhaps understand the extremity of it, and for us to under sometimes to relate to the that context mm. in the US. Yeah. So, and we take a lot of our influence and con content from voices from often from the US it's quite interesting isn't it and yeah. it's not neither wrong or right they're just the realities yeah yeah it's very different yeah, yeah. Mm. absolutely and I was um, I, I, I've written some of the same stuff as you Emma but just like the focus on the relational and I was just struck by kind of like this guy who told his story of the international impact he's had uh, and raising what did he say 25 million pounds uh through we see hope and all those kind of things but then towards the end in the conversation what where are you seeing hope at the moment it was the question you asked him mark and he replied by saying well, i'm looking over my laptop at the moment and i'm seeing a man that i've become friends with uh and like we're combating loneliness together and there's other people mm. in our community that are lonely um and just how like he was really really emphasizing wasn't he the, the importance of relational networks over kind of like the big institutional stuff that we could sometimes go to in our heads yeah. for yeah. pictures of hope yeah so go and make some friends guys yeah. get out there yeah. <laughs> I think just understanding the role of friendship in mission is something that we need to learn again I mean we've talked to Alan Hirsch last year um, uh, I think uh, we were get, getting into like liminality and communitas and the difference between community and communitas mm -hmm. these kind of deep um, deep seated commitments that we can have between friends and being committed to one another and I think Phil was kind of drawing on that as well you know the importance of having those people that you can be accountable with that will stand with you through thick and thin um, and through the kind of productivity mindset that we often have leaned into in the west hmm. we can really lose the importance of friendship where friends or contacts or networks become all about you know getting to a place or producing a particular result mm. you know I'm connecting with you because I can get something out of you mm -hmm. and actually I think that's a real repentance issue 
um, you know, let's not be friends with one another in church because we want to get something from each other because we can produce more or even even in order to multiply, let's just be friends because actually we're called to be friends. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what Jesus uh, models for us. And, you know, he mentions the Garden of Gethsemane and those are the kind of pictures of friendship that we perhaps need to return to again, Mm -hmm. the kind of ancient understanding of what it means to to be on a, uh, you know, on a journey together. Really good. That's good, yeah. Well, look, um, let's bring it to a close. Um, as ever on Venture 12, we like to uh, leave the listeners, the Venturists and the Venturers, and the new wing of Adventurers uh, with some questions to ponder amongst yourselves. So, Mark, uh, what are we asking today? Okay, so obviously we want to kick you off by getting you reflecting on uh, what was um, exciting, what was challenging, what was perhaps uncomfortable to hear. We don't want you to lose sight of those things that disturb your world. Um, what was meaningful? Um, what was, uh, what, what, yeah, who do you need to share this with? Um, so in your friendship groups, in your teams, uh, with those that you're perhaps doing ministry with or just life, uh, we encourage you to kind of reflect on how do we share this? How do we make this a conversation? Um, and then like, I think, at the end, um, I'd like to say uh, to arc back right to the, some of the first words that Phil said um, as a as he was talking about him being a coach of leaders. Um, it might be helpful for us in this moment at the beginning of the year to reflect on what needs to be present in our lives, what needs to be uh, true, uh, and what needs to be absent, and uh, in order for us to be the best that we can possibly be and to be those kind of uh, that salt and light in in a foreign land and to be the people that God is calling us to be in this time. So I think that's it for us today. So whether you've been walking, listening to this uh, or in the gym or at home, we pray God's blessing over you and we look forward to uh, reconnecting again on the Venture 12 podcast in a couple of weeks time. So uh, blessings. Thanks guys. Thanks guys. See you next time. Bye.